This is a special morning, isn't it? This is, this is, this is exciting uh, for us this morning, being able to be here, being in this new space uh, together. Here we are, we've, we've made it, um, we've, we've uh, stepped into our second uh, public venue together. I was saying to some friends earlier this morning that they came very early to help uh, kind of get things going. I, I know for many in the room, th- th- this will be the first time you're even hearing anything about our story. I don't say any of this to try to exclude you, so I want you to know something of who we are and, and hope that you'll really consider coming with us, but um, I I very much remember uh, just down the canal, probably a 10-minute walk south of where we are uh, right now, just before you get to Pretoria Bridge. That's where Natalia and I rented our our, our first home in Ottawa two years ago, and I remember our very first uh, gathering in that that living room. It was January 20th, uh, 2015, uh, 26, sorry, 2016. What was it, 2016? 2016. We had moved in November 2015, sorry. Uh, so our first gathering was in our living room about two months after we had moved. And uh, there were 11 of us, some of whom are, are here this morning. And uh, going from there, and then many months later, moving into Common on Elgin Street, and then many months after that, about a year after that, coming here to the Shaw Center. Guys, this is special. This is special. I, I, I said to, uh, uh, on an online team kind of collaboration thing that we have in the church called Slack. I posted last night saying that many people have the privilege of being part of a local church, but few people have the privilege of being part of helping to start a local church. And all of you here, even if this is your first time coming this morning thinking, oh, well, this seems quite established and it's kind of going along. No, no, we're very much a new church. Another way of wording that would be a church plant. We're very much in that stage. And we want you to know there's, there's room for you to come and help. Come in any strengths, any gifts that God has given you. I want to encourage you, pour yourself into this because this has been such a, a privileged journey so far. And that is going to uh, continue. So um, whether you've been with us from day one or if this is day one for you, welcome. Welcome again. We're glad that you're here. And uh, we uh, are excited for what God is going to be doing in us as we move forward from this place. Over the past many months in the church, we've been in a series in the Gospel of Mark, and we've been calling it Jesus, Con, or King, kind of looking at the life of Jesus and saying, is, is Jesus who he said he was, or have we essentially been tricked? Is, have, have, did he make up stuff about himself, or did other people make up stuff about him that we've just kind of come to understand today? So we're slowly going our way through the Gospel of Mark. This morning, as we're picking this up for our uh, first uh, kind of uh, look again in this uh, series for this year, this calendar year, uh, we now find ourselves in Mark chapter 11. So if you have a Bible with you, whether you brought one or you got one on your phone, feel free to turn to uh, Mark chapter 11. Uh, my friend Josh is going to come up. He's going to read Mark 11 verses 1 to 10. So uh, the words will come up here on the screen as well. Okay. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever written. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord needs it and will send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, What are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. 
When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Thanks, Josh. Well, as I was saying, this is our first service back after uh, Christmas. Hopefully you've had a great Christmas. If, uh, if you're like me, hopefully around Christmas you were able to spend time uh, with two things that most of us love the most in this world. The first is family, the second is Netflix. So um, I, I don't know if you had time just to kind of veg out and put your feet up and, and check out a series on Netflix. Natalia and I have really been enjoying going through The Crown. Season 2 uh, is on Netflix now. Anybody in the room has, has watched The Crown? Quite a few of you, I suspect. Um, it's been really fascinating to watch I, 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 as I watch it. Um, I find myself becoming more and more proud that Queen Elizabeth is uh, my queen, the queen of Canada as well, of course. And, and our fascination uh, kind of uh, with royalty isn't just in things that we would find um, on Netflix or, or, or kind of fictional shows that way. Even while that's all happening on Netflix, being one of the most popular uh, shows that's kind of out there right now, you don't even have to uh, only watch Netflix to come across things concerning royals. If you just turn the news on, no doubt that you uh, recently have, have heard the news and watched the news about Prince Harry, who is going to marry uh, Rachel Zane and, uh, from, from Suits, clearly, uh, Meghan Markle. And uh, that's all happening as well. I, I read this interesting story about a woman who in, in England uh, went, I think it was on Christmas Eve, when the royal family go, as they do per tradition, they go to uh, an Anglican church for the Christmas Eve service. And uh, there was a woman, just a royal watcher, who went and got the photo the photo that all of the papers all around the world ended up getting. She, she sold the rights to it, and she said that she's at work, and, and her phone rings, and she's saying to her friends, oh, I'm sorry, that's actually my agent calling, you know, someone who just got their iPhone out and took this photo. Because we're fascinated with royals. We're, we're, we're fascinated with that kind of celebrity culture that way. And I know that there are many people that would consider themselves uh, to be royal watchers. My own wife said to me a little while ago, uh, my wife's British, and she said, oh, if, we, uh, if we're able to time it when we go back to the UK, I, wanna, I want us to go to London to watch the royal wedding. <laughs> and I was trying to make sure that we were not timing it so that we were back in London during the royal wedding. But I know she's quite fascinated with that as well, as I know that many others in this room would be. Well, if you're fascinated by kind of all things royal, I have good news for you this morning, because the Christian story and the Bible is very much concerned with royalty. It's very much concerned with, with one king in particular, and his name is King Jesus. So if you have kind of a, a royal fascination, well, keep listening, because you're going to hear about a king, a, a member of a royal family, and a leader of a royal family, unlike any other. You're going to hear about him this morning. Now, Mark chapter 11, where we're picking our story up today, it represents quite a shift in the story, in the gospel of Mark. Because where we started off in Mark's gospel many, many months ago uh, was Jesus being baptized, kind of at the very beginning of his time of ministry. And then he goes and he, he chooses his disciples. And then all sorts of incredible things start to happen. As he's traveling around with his disciples, there are miracles happening. There are people who are sick who are being healed. There's a man with a withered hand. His hand is healed. There's a 12-year-old girl who dies, father coming and, and, and saying to Jesus, please, can you come? And by the time Jesus arrived, this little girl has passed away, and Jesus raises her to life. There are people that have evil spirits 
living in them. And we hear that in our culture and think, well, does that, does that really happen? I remember saying quite a few months ago that there are times when I read the news and hear about some horrific events happening around the world where I think, I don't think it's a stretch at all to think that these sorts of things still happen, where there is a force of evil that is just trying to destroy people. Unfortunately, we don't need to look very far in our world to, to see what I genuinely believe would be evidence of that. But Jesus, even in those situations, breaking in and people being free of these things that are controlling them, even literally controlling their own bodies, these phenomenal things that are taking place. And while Jesus is doing this, he's teaching his disciples He's telling them about himself. And eventually he hits this stage where he tells them what is going to happen to him. He says this in Mark chapter 9, verse 31. Jesus speaking about himself. He often referred to himself as the son of man. He said the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise. Whoa, where's that coming from? Jesus, the, the disciples and others that were, that were interested in Jesus, they were starting to ask this question, is Jesus this promised Messiah that we as a, a Jewish people that we've been waiting for, that we've read about in the, in the prophets, in the old scriptures, we've been waiting for this Messiah. Is, is Jesus this promised one who's going to come? But Jesus has just told us that he's going to be arrested, that he's going to be killed. Don't quite know what to do with that. In fact, we actually read that in Mark's gospel. The very next verse, verse 9, uh, chapter 9, 32, says this, but they did not understand the saying. And they were afraid to ask him. They did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. The picture that they had of what the Messiah would be like and what he would do didn't seem to be consistent with what Jesus was saying he would do. Perhaps some of us can relate to that. I know in, 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 in our culture, even here in, in Canada, even here in Ottawa, if you were to go out you know, to the, to the Rideau Center, over to the market, or over to Elgin, or wherever it might be in town, and you were to ask people, hey, what, what, do you, what do you think of Jesus? I suspect that most people would be quite polite in their response. You'd probably hear things like, yeah, I've, I've, I've heard something about Jesus. Seems like a guy who has some really good things to say, some, some, some wise teachings. Seemed to be, you know, a, a, a pretty good man. I suspect you would hear that quite a bit. You might have some people that would respond a little bit more harshly or, or, or something of pain in them or whatever it might be. But I think on an average, you would find that people would be fairly receptive to speaking well about Jesus and saying, well, no, he, you know, he's, he's a good guy. He, he, he had some good things to say. But when it comes to Jesus being arrested and being killed... And being raised to life three days later, if you were to ask people what they think of that, do you believe that Jesus died on a cross and that he was dead for three days and that he was raised to life? That's where we would see a separation between those who might politely say, well, no, I I, I have respect for Jesus. I respect Jesus as compared to those that would say, no, I follow Jesus. I've given my life to him. A lot of it would hinge on the cross, and on what Christians believe as truth of the empty tomb. See, in, in, in our culture, you know, I'm talking about just this idea of just respecting Jesus. In our culture, we kinda, we, we're quite cheap with respect. We, we hand it out a bit like it's a, a fast food coupon. You know, we can be very quick to say, well, no, I, I, you know, I, I respect that. If, you, if you're at work or university and somebody tells you something that they did and you think it was quite a good thing, something that you might respond by saying is just, just one word, oh, 
Respect. I can't say it and try to sound cool. Maybe some of you can, okay? Respect. If you're on social media, what do you see? Probably quite a bit. I have no doubt. It's probably hashtag respect. I mean, we can just kind of fire it out there. It's quite easy to do. But it's also, uh, I remember when I was doing my undergraduate degree out in New Brunswick many years ago now, I remember hearing things in, in, in that sort of uh, environment. I remember hearing people say things like, well, look, I, I, I respect you as a human being, but I, I don't respect your opinion. And I remember at the time thinking, that sounds really good. That sounds like a compliment. <laughs> but it's actually saying, I feel about as warm towards you as I do to six billion other people. And it's not actually that much of a compliment. It's kind of trying to have our cake and eat it too. I respect you as a human being, but I don't respect your opinion. Has Jesus just come simply to be respected by us? Has he come just wanting to earn our respect? Our respect that can be fleeting our respect that, that, that can change, our respect that, that, we can, that we can hand out without a huge amount of thought in many cases. I believe that the Bible says that no, that's not what Jesus has come to try to do. We, we, we can respect somebody without having an allegiance to them. Does that make sense? You, 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 can, you can think well of someone but not say, I follow them, I feel loyal to them, I, I, I'm with them. That's what Jesus invites us into. Jesus didn't come just to try to win our respect. He came to win us, all of us, not just our respect, but every part of our being, heart, soul, strength, and mind. That's what Jesus wants. He wants all of us as his chosen and loved possession. Now, Mark's gospel is actually Mark as a scribe telling Peter's story. You might know of him as, as the Apostle Peter or, or Saint Peter. But when Jesus first met him, he was Fisherman Peter. He was, he was working this all out from, from scratch. But even in what I was just saying of Jesus not just coming and, and wanting our respect, but wanting every part of us, wanting us as a possession for himself, a treasured possession for himself. Peter worked that out later on in his life. In one of his own letters, he says this, in 1 Peter 2, verse 9, he says, in speaking to the church, Grace City, in speaking to us this morning, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. A people for his own possession. A people for his own possession. That's different than being a people that just respect Jesus, just kind of tipping their hat to Jesus. Friends, this is what Jesus invites us into, is, is belonging to him. I know we might hear that word possession and think, oh, do I, well, like I'm, like I'm property? Is that like kind of objectifying me? This is, trust me, this is the type of possession that you want to be. This is where you flourish. This is where you know life and you know it to the full, belonging to Jesus, a treasured and chosen possession in him. So as I was saying, the cross and the empty grave, that sits at the very center of this. If, if it's true that Jesus went to the cross in our place, and that he was raised to life three days later, that demands far more than our respect. That demands our all. That demands our all. Jesus going to the cross in our place and being raised to life three days later intellectually, it just, it calls us to consider this. And so what do I do with this? If this is true, this changes everything. And if it's true and we surrender our lives to Jesus, there's going to be something of cost in that. 
There's going to be something of cost of following Jesus. If you're here this morning and you say that you've given your life to Jesus, but you've known no area in your life where it's been costly to you, I would say there's probably cause to consider whether you've truly given your life to him. Because giving your life to Jesus will be costly. It will mean laying down other gods, other things that you worship, other things that you find your identity and purpose in. It will mean laying those other things down and following him and him alone. Now, the disciples had worked out that this would be costly. Following Jesus would be costly. And as they're walking into Jerusalem, they're literally following Jesus into Jerusalem where Jesus, four or five days later, would be arrested, where he would then be put to death. And the disciples are working this out. They're like, man, we are, we are walking towards conflict. But they're thinking, well, we're, we're, you know, we're walking with, with the Messiah. What's this going to look like? What is this entry going to look like as we go into uh, Jerusalem? Now, now if, I were, if I were one of them, I would be thinking, well, Jesus is the Messiah. This entry into Jerusalem, this is going to be incredible. I mean, Jesus coming in all this might and all this strength and all this power, this is going to be phenomenal to watch. I mean, we're going to go out and we're going to be part of this incredible procession. This is just going to be absolutely insane how this is all going to play out. But let's keep reading in the story and see how it does play out. Mark 11, verses 2 and 3, as they were approaching Jerusalem, Jesus says this, Go to the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied. Okay, a colt is a baby donkey, all right? You will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. Jesus, the Messiah, the Lord, the King of Kings, the King of Kings, entering Jerusalem, entering the very epicenter of Jewish culture, of Jewish thought, of Jewish life. And what does he choose to enter it on? A baby donkey that had never been ridden before. Not like a cute little horse, all right? Some of you grew up kind of riding horses. You hear the word colt, and you think kind of a cute little, you think, oh, I can kind of picture this. Maybe you'd even have a well-behaved one. A donkey, <laughs> a baby donkey. This is like the most humble of, of, of entries that you could ever have. I remember when uh, Natalia and I first got married, the very first car that we ever owned uh, was called a Peugeot 106. Now, they're, they're, it's made in France. When I was a kid, I had a Peugeot bicycle. I didn't even know they made cars until I went to live in the UK. And we had a Peugeot 106. We bought it for 500 pounds. That's about $800. And um, I, I, as I was thinking about this this week, I thought, I wonder if I have any old photos of that car. So I don't know if any of you have Google Photos. It's amazing. I put the word Peugeot in, and it just came up with this old car that we owned. And I noticed a bit of a theme in the three photos that I found. Let's see if you can spot the theme. So this is photo number one of this old car that we had. All right? So before we go on, this... Now, before any of you comment on my parking job, which is probably a whole other story here, all right? This car, it had, it had a small crack in the engine block that would let air into the engine until the engine was warm enough that it would seal up that crack. And while that was happening, it, w- it was like driving a smoke machine. It, there would just be this haze pouring out of it. And I remember having to go out and get this car running for 10 or 15 minutes before Natalia would go off to work just so that she wouldn't have to have the embarrassment of driving down, kind of fogging out the entire city behind her. So this is photo number one. Let's go to photo number two of this car. All right. Now, this is in Spain. Um, my dad and I took a road trip in Spain. And this car, you know when you go to put fuel in a car and, and, and you're filling it up and then when the tank gets full, it does that click and it stops? You know what I'm talking about? This car, for some strange reason, even if the tank was bone dry, 
you would only be able to put five or 10 pounds, you know, like 15 or 20 bucks worth of fuel in it, and it would take more than that, and it would click. And it was so annoying because you could never fully fill the tank. When my dad and I were driving in Spain, we went to fuel up somewhere, and I realized that I was able to fully fill the tank. I thought, what is going on here? And I looked at the car. The car was parked on this slant. And what was going on is because the car was on a slant, air was able to escape out of the fuel tank through this valve that had broken, and it meant that fuel could go in. So I realized that for as long as I owned the car, unless I got this thing repaired, which I wasn't going to do because the repair would have cost more than the car itself, the solution was to back the car up onto the island where I was getting fuel and then to put fuel in the car. Some fuel stations don't have this island, so in many cases I would get the spare wheel jack out, crank up the back of the car, and put fuel in it. I remember being at one in Brighton, and I remember, oh, this poor kid, he must have been 16 years old, he came over the intercom, uh, excuse me, sir, why are you cranking the back of your car? I can't explain it. Just please let me do it. I have to do this to be able to put fuel. Are you changing the tire, sir? Do you need... No, I'm not changing the t- Well, then why do you have the spare wheel? I told you, man, it's just it's not worth explaining. Just don't worry about it, okay? So that was another thing about the car. And then the final one, which I think sums the entire thing up, this is the third photo I found, is this. So this is the car in one of its many, many trips to the garage. Now, imagine that I have this car. I'm in the UK, I'm driving somewhere in London, I'm, I'm, I don't know, I'm at a friend's place, or I'm, I'm pulled off on the side of the road, or wherever I am, and imagine somebody walking up to me with an earpiece and a suit, somebody looks like, you know, a pretty hefty kind of security guy, and remember, imagine the security guy looking at me and saying, the queen has use of this car, and will return it to you immediately. The queen has the use of this car. Have, have you looked at, like, is she looking for entertainment? Does she need an anchor for her boat? Like, wh- why does she want to have this car? Now, the queen has use of this car, and she will return it to you immediately. If you're picturing that hilarious type of scenario, imagine that times a billion, and you're starting to get something of the king of kings, the lord of lords, sending his disciples to go and to get a baby colt coming and entering into Jerusalem on the, mo- on the most humble, humble of animals. This type of situation I was telling about with this car would only be a fraction of what it would be like for Jesus entering Jerusalem on a donkey. And what are they shouting as Jesus comes in? They're shouting Hosanna. We sang it in the song that we started the service off with. Hosanna meaning save us or oh save us. People shouting this out, save us. Oh, save us, as they're laying their cloaks on the road as a pathway and laying down palm branches for Jesus as he enters in. Now, I imagine there would be some in the crowd that would be watching this thinking, I don't know whether this is a Messiah worth following. I don't know whether this is a king worth following. I want, I want the king to come in in power and in might. I don't want him, I don't want him to come in, 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 in you know, on, on, on a baby donkey. I want him to come in, in in this grand procession on the most incredible of animals. I don't know if this is the type of Jesus that I want to follow. I don't know if this is the type of Messiah that I want to follow. And I think, again, even for us in our culture today, I think that some people initially are intrigued by Jesus. They look and go, well, this, this is interesting, and he is interesting. But when they look at Jesus in depth and realize that he is not going to be the type of king that they might expect him to be. He's not going to take marching orders from them. Friends, King Jesus isn't going to take marching orders from you or from me, from me. He is going to be the king 
that he chooses to be. It's at that point that many people go, well, you know what? I'm out. I'm not interested. I want to be able to tell Jesus what type of king I want him to be. Isaiah 53, verse 2 and 3, says something about Jesus many years before Jesus was even born. That, that is a bit startling at first, but speaks to the humility of Jesus and, and just, just the humanity of him. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Philippians 2, verse 5 to 8, Paul, in writing to the church in Philippi, he says this, he says, Have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. No former majesty that we should look at him and, and, and admire him. Jesus taking the form of a servant, the servant king. Here's an incredible thing about Jesus, is that Jesus loved to borrow from people. You know, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, loved to borrow from people. What, what a privilege, you know, to loan to Jesus. Did you catch that in the text that, that Jesus sends his disciples out and he, and he says to go and to borrow this, this cult from somebody? Psalm 24 tells us that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. So how is it, how is it that, that Jesus even would borrow anything? And I think it's this, Jesus liked borrowing things from people because borrowing is, is really a matter of the heart. Borrowing is a matter of, of, of trust. Many of you will have gone to rent a car. I doubt you've ever gone into the car rental place and have stood across from the other side of the desk and had the other person look at you and say, you know what, I think you're a pretty trustworthy person. Why don't you just take it for a few days? Don't worry about it. Don't worry about payment. Don't worry about the credit card deposit or anything else or signing a waiver. Just take it because you look trustworthy. Well, that's not how it works when you rent. With renting, there's a, tra- there's a financial transaction. There's, there's something of having to put down a deposit. But with borrowing, when a friend wants to borrow something from you, it's not the same thing that's going on. When somebody wants to borrow something from you, you are required to make a judgment call. Immediately. We all do it. We make a judgment call. Do I trust this person? If I trust them, I will loan them the thing that they want to borrow from me. If I don't trust them, I, I won't. Borrowing is a matter of trust. Borrowing is a matter of the heart. And you know what? Jesus loves the heart. Jesus is very interested in your heart. And Jesus is always wanting to know whether we will trust him. Do we trust him? Do we even trust him with the things that he owns anyway, that we think we own? We don't. It all belongs to him. There are times when Jesus asks us to even borrow these, those things from us. Jesus, the king of the earth, who the entire earth belongs to, and the heavens, borrowed from a lot of people. From a lot of people. In Luke chapter 5, Jesus goes out and he preaches from a borrowed boat. Here in Mark 10, Jesus borrows a donkey to ride into Jerusalem. In Luke chapter 22, Jesus borrows an upper room. Many of you have seen that famous painting, The Last Supper. You know, the, the scene is in an upper room. That's a borrowed room. He sends his disciples to go and ask for this room. And then in the very next chapter, Luke chapter 23, Jesus' body, having been put to death on the cross, is buried where? In a borrowed tomb. Jesus is the borrowing king. He's concerned about the heart. He's concerned about whether or not people will trust him with what they have when he comes to ask for it, for his own uses, for his own purposes, and for his own glory. We might think 
what the owner of the donkey might have been tempted to think. What could Jesus possibly want with this donkey? Look at it. It's a donkey. What could he possibly want with that? Some of you here this morning might be thinking the very same thing as we talk about being in this new venue and a church that's on the move and God's joining people to us. And, and, and I stand up and I give that invitation. Come with us. Strengths, gifts, abilities that you have. Pour them in. Put them to use here. There's space for you. You hear me say that. And some of you think, I'm, I'm like the dude with the donkey. I've got nothing to contribute to this. What do I possibly have that is going to be of any use here? I wonder if the owner of the donkey was thinking that very thing. The Lord has use of this? Of this animal? The Lord has use of this? Meanwhile, Jesus is saying, I have great plans for this. What is it that you have this morning that you think, the Lord will have no use of that? You know, there's this little thing that I, that I do, but not, you know, a good thing. It's like, I think it's a little bit of a towel, but none of my friends know about it. None of my family know about it. It's just kind of my thing. You know what? That could be a game changer for this church. <laughs> that could be a game changer for the glory of Jesus in this city. You have no idea how God could use that insignificant, tiny thing that you've perhaps just completely discounted. God could have great and glorious plans for it that involve your good and involve his glory. As you read through your Bible, if you have one, if you don't have one, come and let us know. We want to help with that. You'll find story after story after story of God taking these small, insignificant things and doing incredible things through them. Samson, in the book of Judges, picking up the jawbone of a dead donkey. There's another kind of donkey theme running through Scripture. The jawbone of a dead donkey and killing a thousand enemies of God's people who were tormenting and terrorizing God's people. He picks up this, this, this donkey jawbone, this insignificant object. That's what he picks up to do that. David, a boy, killing a giant. We've all heard the story, Christian or not. David and Goliath, what does he pick up? Stones. One boy, five stones, first stone in, and slays this giant. Meanwhile, there are other armies looking around. They've got all of their armor. They're, They're all, you know, they're ready to go. They look like real soldiers, and there's a boy with a sling and a stone. A tiny, insignificant boy and an insignificant sling and an insignificant stone brings victory to the people of God in the slaying of a giant. And then, of course, as we're looking at this morning, Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey's colt, a young donkey. Jesus using it for incredible, incredible purposes. The Bible's full of stories like this is what God does. Friends, this is what God does. I want to honor, I'm only going to name one this morning, but I could name them all. I want to honor a number of leaders that are in this church and people that are serving in this church who are stepping, I believe, in faith in this area, looking at what God has given them, strengths, abilities, talents, and saying, God, this is for you. I want to give this to you. This morning at 7 o'clock, there was uh, just a phenomenal team that uh, gathered outside the door at the Shaw Center. We, we said, look, this is our first morning in here. Can we get a bunch of people here early just to help wherever there's a need? This group shows up. Uh, what is it outside this morning? I think minus, minus 20. I read minus 35 with the wind chill coming in this morning. Phenomenal group of people. The one that I uh, do want to highlight, I know he's going to hate this, but I'm going to do it anyway, is um, Liam, who's sat back down uh, at, the, at the sound desk um, in behind you guys there. Liam, at 5.20 this morning, went out to catch a bus to come to my house where we hook the church trailer up, and then over we come. The bus uh, either missed the bus or the bus didn't come. Ended up walking to my house in minus 35 wind chill this morning, and, and a lot of the uh, logistical changes that have happened uh, this morning, a huge amount of the, um, 
huge amount of what has to be done is tech. Really important. And Liam has carried that, and he's carried it so well. Liam, I, I, as your pastor, as your friend, I want you to know that God is so proud of you. He's so proud of you. He looks at what the talent you have, the gift you have, the ability you have, the heart that you have, and he delights in it. And he's using your gifts, your strengths, to bring the gospel to our city. All right? I'm not just talking about what I'm doing right now. I'm talking about the songs that we sing. We're going to take communion later on. Every, the other things we do as a church, it requires people like Liam and many others that I can name coming and using what they have, saying, God, this is for you. This is what God does. God takes what we think might be easily forgotten or overlooked. How many of you this morning, even kind of coming in, you might have noticed a few kind of tech things that were a little bit different, but, but thought of, well, is there a team kind of behind it? We, we just, I'm not criticizing, we just tend not to think that way. Generally, it's the type of area that if it goes well, we tend not to notice it that much. In some ways, that's kind of how it should be. I get that, all right? But it's an easy thing to overlook. God takes the thing that is overlooked or the thing that is so easily forgotten and he makes it unforgettable. That's what God does. So I want to say it again, friends. What is the unforgettable, or the forgettable thing, the thing that you think you have where nobody else would ever notice? Give it to God. Trust him with it. See what God will do with that. Jesus, in, in, in marching towards Jerusalem, he knew that he was advancing towards his own death and his own execution. Jesus didn't enter Jerusalem quietly, though. He didn't enter it secretly. He didn't enter in going, oh, don't tell anybody that I'm here. He came in, it, he, he came in as a king, not like any other king, but he still came in as a king with the crowds calling out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And next week we're going to pick the story up from there and just see exactly what King Jesus does when he enters into Jerusalem. But when Jesus enters Jerusalem, people know that he's there. And let me tell you this, when Jesus comes into your life, you will know that he's there. You will see things starting to change. You will notice things in your own life that the Holy Spirit will reveal to you that should change. And these are things for your good There's an enemy that wants you to feel kind of a sense of guilt and a sense of shame about that. Jesus has taken all of that for you on the cross. But the Holy Spirit will highlight things in your life that are not like Jesus. And Jesus wants to come and take up residence inside of you. So there are things that are in you and that are in me. And friends, trust me, there still are that the Holy Spirit is going to highlight to us saying, that's not good for you. And that's not good in the palace of Christ where he is going to take up residence, where he is living. Let's work on this. Let's change this. Speaking about Jesus becoming king of your life, C.S. Lewis, who many of you will be familiar with, Chronicles of Narnia, a book called Mere Christianity as well, which is where this quote is from. He says this, on the kingship of Jesus in your life, and I'm going to close with this. He says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts dominally. Abominally. Not, oh, maybe it hurts abdominally as well. <laughs> and does not seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one that you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you are going to be made into a decent little cottage. But he's building a palace, and he intends to come and live in it himself. As we start this year off together as a church, I want to encourage us to have a servant-hearted attitude modeled after our King Jesus, who even though 
the entire earth belonged to him. The heavens and the earth belonged to him still, the king who borrowed, the king who asked people, do you trust me? Will you trust me with that? Our servant king who humbled himself even to the point of death on a cross for your sake and for mine.